Welcome back to the Society Case Files podcast. My name is Robert and I'll be your host. Today I'm going to switch gears for the podcast in general. It's been a while since I've recorded one. I really didn't know what I wanted to do going forward, but I've come up with a plan now and I'm really excited about it and I hope that it will ultimately help people who listen to this become better at what they do. And what I'm talking about, of course, is creation. Whether that be writing, making the audio dramas, art, comics, whatever it is you do, most of what I talk about should apply in some way or another. So the first thing we're going to talk about today is a little bit of self-promotion. I'm going to talk about malevolence. Um, This has grown a lot for me over the past several months. I've seen enormous growth on Tapastic, a lot of views, uh, double what I had been seeing. So lots of folks are reading the comic now. Um, The art itself that I post on DeviantArt and ArtStation and other places, it's getting a lot of engagement. People are pretty excited about it. And then I've been working on the audio drama, of course, which I've released the first two episodes of now. Uh, The first one is free, and all of the links will be included in the description. And finally, I'm working on two other things that aren't quite ready yet, but are pretty interesting. One is a novella series that takes place somewhere else than the comics do with with a different set of characters and some reoccurring ones. And I'm also working on a narrative role-playing game. It's a completely different way of playing a role-playing game. It it has a little bit more in common with live-action role-playing and the old mushes and that sort of thing. So that'll be very interesting as well. So what I want to talk about, though, in regards to this stuff is let's start with the audio drama. That was a 13-part series, uh, basically representing one issue of each of the comics. So in this case, like I said, there's 13, and I just broke them up, uh, created a screenplay. It was pretty freaking lengthy, and the grand total length is around five hours for the whole series, if you want to listen to it back to back to back. And right now, I'm releasing them one at a time. Um, I am not quite finished with each episode, I am currently, as of the recording of this podcast, I'm up to episode seven, Needing Music, but I've cut up and prepared all episodes up to 11. And what basically that entails is sitting down uh, and going through all of the audio performances and doing your best to ensure that they sound like they came from the same recording studio, or at least as close to it as possible. Uh, in this day and age, especially, it's a little bit harder to bring people to a studio to do that kind of work. And that's even true of something like Big Finish doing all those Doctor Who ones. There was one I listened to during their COVID time that you could kind of tell that David Tennant wasn't in the same room as other people. And these guys are hardcore professionals when it comes to audio engineering of all sorts. In fact, it takes them quite a while to put in all the sound effects and stuff. So... With that in mind, I'm not too picky about making sure of it, but I get it as close as possible. And I'd say that with only a few exceptions, these sound really, really good, and they they come off very well. Uh, The big challenge, of course, is that people are recording somewhat in a vacuum with just direction from me. They don't necessarily get to hear the performance of the person talking to them. A few people have. Uh, I I haven't really noticed a dramatic improvement in their performance when they have heard what they're responding to. Um, 
when I'm creating the conversation, which is really what happens. I just get a massive file from someone that has each of their lines and both people do the same thing. And then I go into my audio software and I cut up their conversation and move it into the proper position, find the right pauses to make it sound natural. And I effectively am crafting the dialogue and it's kind of fun. It's a lot of control, but it also is quite time consuming. I'd say that a 20 minute um, drama with, depending on the number of people, it could take anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and a half to get it right. And you have to think about a few things while you're doing that. Uh, one of them is, um, is somebody doing a voiceover? Like, are they addressing the audience, basically? In that case, they get their own track. Is somebody talking on the phone? Are we hearing it from one of the other perspectives? And therefore, should we have a telephone effect on that particular line? And then that person, maybe they're not on the phone in the next line. Well, there's two more tracks. And you just kind of want to move it around based on whether or not someone is going to have an effect on their voice. Maybe they're outside in a crazy dock area and they should have some echo. So you want to put that on a special track. And whatever it is, you ultimately end up with anywhere between, well, in these episodes, considering the number of characters, just the dialogue alone is anywhere between three and, and 15 tracks just for that. Then there's the sound effects and, and music and depending on how you're using your music, whether it's like a creepy scene that needs some tension building or just basically ambient music to fill in the gaps and help the voids, you, you need to effectively have enough tracks to cover the different types of instruments you're going to use. Uh, I really try to keep the number of instruments to a very m low minimum and that's mostly because the story is being driven by dialogue, conversation, and sound effects. Too much music gets in the way. A great example is in episode 6, I wrote a full-on song for a segment. Had that song just been written as a performance piece for people to listen to like it was on a CD, I would have added more instruments than it actually has. But in this case, I managed to keep it down to basically a set of drums and two instruments. And that was about enough to be interesting, but not too complex to compete with what was being said. So very important distinction when creating the audio dramas is to really think simple. Because oftentimes when you're creating something, you fall into a single focused mentality of this song needs to stand alone as a song. But if you really listen to... Uh, soundtracks from video games or movies, you'll quickly see that simplicity is king. Sometimes they'll have a single instrument doing something very monotonous, but you didn't really notice while you were watching the movie because all of the things at the same time de detracted from the, the uh, shall I say, repetitiveness of the music. And so it's important to really study the other mediums that this sort of effectively spawned. You know, radio dramas to television to talkies or whatever you want to, however you want to splice that up. Uh, you're essentially creating a movie without the visuals. And when you think along those lines, then you're able to use movies as inspiration for your audio dramas. So anyway, leaving behind the impromptu lesson about audio dramas, let's talk more about the novella. I came up with the idea of writing a novel for Malevolence just after the second episode of the comic was done. 
I'd been really working hard on it, and I thought, you know, this would really be fun to do a sort of dramatic, uh, very old-style novel with the character really just spewing out the philosophies you see in the comic and getting really deep and, and taking it a step further since here we are with a novel, so we've got more room to sort of pontificate. And I wrote the first few pages and then I realized, eh, this isn't really going to be a good idea because it's just too flowery, it's too out of control. And a lot of what I had to say in there, I was saying with the comic already. So there wasn't a lot of reason to continue and I stopped that project. More recently, I came up with the idea to make the role-playing game. And the role-playing game, I didn't want it to be a traditional level-based system or point-based system or any of that stuff that you see. I really wanted it to have characteristics that were more like improvisational acting so that people could play these characters in scenarios without worrying too much about being bogged down by a bunch of rules. In fact, quite often you're not even needing to do anything random. The, the group itself uh, sort of just discusses what should happen based on whatever factors their characters have and then move on. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. But as I was doing it, I realized what I really needed was some lore. I did all of the system. That's all done. But I needed to write lore about the world and I needed to expand on the world. And the Malevolence comic does a great job of creating mystery but it doesn't necessarily explain a lot of stuff about vampires, where they came from, or any of that stuff, because it's all secretive. I mean, the characters themselves, for instance, the human, Constance, who's sort of being pursued by Nina, doesn't really know about vampires at all. So even though she gets caught up in all this nonsense, it doesn't really matter because she doesn't get any of the insider details. Season two is diving a little deeper into that stuff, but I'm still keeping it mysterious there. So what I needed was another avenue to explore the world, and that's where the novellas came in. I created a place called Carter's Grove. It's in Washington State. It's an old logging town, sort of falling on hard times. And the concept is, is that this really old family had founded it, and there's all kinds of mystery going on. The woods might be haunted. They may not. Uh, I made up a special division of the FBI so that I could have an FBI agent come in and investigate a murder. Uh, there's a, a son from afar come home to receive his inheritance, and he's got drama going on. And then I introduce a couple of the characters from the actual Malevolence comic as well. And through this, I'm able to create a lot more lore and actually provide a setting for the storytelling portion of the game. And that way people can read the novellas and go, oh, that's kind of how we should be playing. And one of the things that I want to talk about there is a long time ago, I was really excited about the Ravenloft setting for Dungeons and Dragons. And one of the things that was hard about it was I didn't really know how to run that. We'd been running Forgotten Realms forever, and that's pretty easy. You give people a quest, they go out and do it. It's very MMO in that way. Uh, they go out and kill a bunch of monsters. Maybe they free someone, hostage, whatever it is. And then they go home, get their treasures, level up, and then you come up with another story. But with Ravenloft, the whole focus seemed different. And so how do you embrace that? They didn't do the best job of explaining how to get player characters involved in a Ravenloft story. 
So you're kind of left to your own devices of, well, what is Gothic horror? And how does Gothic horror apply to Dungeons and Dragons? And then they came out with the novels. Well, I was excited because if I read the novels, I figured that that would give me an idea of what to present to my players. So I read Vampires in the Mist and it was a fantastic book. It was one of my favorite books for years and years and years. Love it. But it was not a Dungeons and Dragons adventure. Uh, the characters involved might have been characters that could be played in a game, but probably not by your average gaming group, and certainly not by my gaming group, who we were all in our teens, and the first uh, answer to pretty much every problem was, hit it. Um, so that was a bit of a disappointment, because whilst I loved the book, and it impacted me in a lot of ways, it didn't actually do what I hoped it would do, which is present me with a method to run future Ravenloft games. Then I read the second book, the third book, fourth book, all the way up. It took quite a while. I can't remember the actual name of the book. I think it was the Tapestry of Dark Souls that finally had a party of characters <laughs> and was the first one that really presented an, an idea that might work for a Ravenloft campaign. But by then it was too late. We'd already run our own games and tried them out. And for the most part, they just didn't work with the kind of group we had at the time. Plus, the D&D rules didn't really... Uh, they didn't work as well with narrative play of trying to get these characters to do the things they did because people wanted to use the system available to them. They wanted to kick butt. They wanted to cast spells and all that stuff. Can't blame them, especially at our age. So turning around, looking at this, my number one thing was that I wanted the game to represent what I wrote. I wanted you to be able to take the game and play basically what, I wrote and jump into that kind of story. You should be able to read the novella and know basically what you're getting when you sit down to play the game. All of the characters in the novella could be played by by people who are running the game. Um, and that was, that was very important to generate folks that were interesting enough that you could see the dramas that they might have sort of brewing behind the scenes, but not necessarily coming out in every single scene. So how did I go about crafting these novellas? Well, the first thing I did was I needed at least a foundation, a canvas to start with. And that started with the town of Carter's Grove. I wanted a single place that was big enough to have some intrigue and drama but not so big that it was like Seattle or something. I wanted the characters to sort of feel a little bit of isolation, uh, be close-knit, that kind of thing. And to that end, I was inspired by Dark Shadows and Twin Peaks, that sort of thing. These small places that have weird stuff going on, but it sort of kept quiet. Another great example of what I was inspired by is uh, Salem's Lot. You know, these small places, just crazy stuff can happen. I mean vampires could take over the whole town in the case of Sam's lot. So once I had that foundation, I made all the characters. I, I created first the main one, Gabriel Carter. He's the character who's coming home to receive his inheritance after his father dies, who, by the way, he's never really known. I created the FBI agent who's coming to investigate the murder. I designed a new division of the FBI that investigates murder, and it's a very mysterious thing. There's my X-Files inspiration, as well as Twin Peaks again. And then we've got just a slew of other characters that just fill up the town. The sheriff, the doctor, the character who was murdered, their parents, friends, high school kids, the rest of the Carter family. 
all of them sort of interconnected with random stuff. And then, of course, we needed something that's a, just an overall challenge. And that's where I come up with the idea that maybe there's something really weird about the environment, the forest, the town. Who knows? Whatever it is, it's it's going to come out in the story. That's That's the point. And with all of that information, I mean, that right there, that's good enough to start a role-playing game campaign. You can bring all the characters into this place and just have them start doing stuff. You know, with the Malevolence role-playing game, it's a lot different than others. There's not necessarily a game master. Everybody plays every character to some extent. You have stars, minor characters, supporting roles, that sort of thing. And each person adopts multiple characters so they can play throughout different scenes. And occasionally, if someone comes up with a great idea to sort of push some story that, that is going on, then they become the administrator of the game, for lack of a better term. And they basically are controlling things like target numbers and challenges and answer questions throughout the game. Uh, it's kind of a troop play. I don't know if, if, if you've ever played the old Ars Magica, the whole concept was that you built a troop. And everybody had a wizard, everybody had a companion, and then everybody played the grogs, who were effectively like the servants of the chantry and the, the cooks and maybe even soldiers who traveled with them to do various tasks in the world. And, and that's kind of how malevolence works as well. You could be playing a really old vampire, but you might also be playing a lawyer for one of the families in town. You might be playing an escaped serial killer who's on the loose. So you're kind of the villain of the game as well. And you're trying to meld into the city and, and escape and, you know, do whatever nefarious nonsense you're doing. Effectively, everybody gets together. They sort of create a uh, overall tone. And then they list the things that nobody wants to have happen. That's the new sort of consent form, if you will. So everybody consents to what we're going to be focusing on. And then, and, and not, as the case may be, maybe somebody doesn't want extreme gore. Maybe someone doesn't want excessive sexual content. Whatever the case may be, you sort of develop that out. And then you create your characters. It's a very open system in that way. Uh, you've got statistics, you've got skills, but they're very easily changed because it's not about balance. It's about making the people that would be in those roles. And then when there's challenges, you just use cards in order to determine the random elements of whatever challenge you've come up with. And that's if you can't agree on a outcome or the outcome is too important to just discuss through. You Maybe you want to have something really random happen because that could be cool. So that's how the, the role-playing game works. And as you can see, it really does need some meat for the characters and the players to, to get into. And, and basically they need hooks so they can throw themselves into all of these different story elements and forward a narrative. And so that's where both the role-playing game and the novellas come starkly together. Uh, the comic, it's good inspiration, but it's also very specific and it's also not as open-ended. There's not as many people that we get the perspective of, but it still does offer you some excellent visuals for what you can expect to see. And it provides you with a, a canvas of just my vision for what malevolence looks like. Uh, because it is, it's old gothic horror. It's straight out of Dark Shadows. That's, you know, Hammer Films, Dark Shadows. Those are my inspirations. Um, 
in a lot of ways, malevolence has been very uh, cathartic for me. Because one of the things I labored under for years and years and years, up until I started to do ghostwriting, was that every single thing had to be as unique as humanly possible. I would shy away from cliches. I'd run away from anything that even resembled another thing too much. If you could draw a parallel from what I was creating to something else easily, then I felt like I failed. And in a lot of ways, that's just ridiculous. It's... If you love something, you should do it. Even if it's been done before, just do it. There, there is something to be said about originality. There's something to be said about trying to keep things fresh. But at the same time, if you really love it, then your audience is going to sense that affection and they're going to become invested as well. They're going to f- feel feel your appreciation for what you're doing and your passion will rub off on it. Whereas if you're just always trying to be super unique and you've got crazy terms for everything, you build a lexicon from scratch, in some cases, yeah, that's awesome. And if that's what you absolutely love, then it will come out. But if you're doing it solely for the sake of keeping it fresh and interesting, it may come out and be obvious that you've done those things. And an audience can sense when you're doing something that isn't genuine. And so for me, vampires in general were a little cliche for a while. And when I sat down to do Malevolence, I had to tell myself, you know what? I don't care. I'm just doing it. I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to take from my favorite influences and I'm going to make something that's mine. And yeah, it's going to be a little derivative, but ultimately I'm going to put everything I have into it because I've loved this setting and this genre forever. And I think it really worked. I'm very passionate about it. And I'm constantly able to come up with great new ideas for me and just write interesting people. Having crazy melodramatic conversations feels like the silly books that I read when I was a kid. And they're just fun. You know, these wild melodramatic monologues and silly philosophical tirades that you've seen in 90s vampire movies where the nihilistic characters are all getting together to talk about how much everything sucks. It's just awesome. And it's super fun. It's what I've always wanted to do. And that's really where you got to go when you're creating things. As far as ghostwriting is concerned, I did come to the realization that I've written over 80 books for one of my clients. And those books, I would say, have a lot of very interesting elements to them. I do keep them pretty unique for the most part. When I find myself getting too cliche, I take a step back and I twist it up a little bit. I've talked about twisting before. I'll probably devote more time to that on another podcast. But in this case, just briefly, the concept is is that when you find yourself writing something that is so cliche or so much like something else, for example, you've written a chapter and go, wow, I just rewrote the opening scene of Star Wars then you might want to go in and start twisting some details, just change them completely so that it starts to look fresh. I've done that many times in my 80 book careers, 80 plus books by the time you've heard this. And it's served me well because when I read back over what I'm writing, it's, it's a lot of fun. These books tend to be very action oriented. They've got a lot of characters and a lot's going on and I still manage to keep it pretty fresh. And that's because of practice. One, I've written a lot of words (laughs) in this regard. 
And not just that, but just generally caring enough to think about those things, to always be thinking about it and don't fall into the trap of, I am just writing, I am robot writer. That's, that's going to get you into trouble because then you're going to repeat yourself. You're going to create the same things over and over again. And it's not going to be interesting for folks. Not to say that repeating yourself is necessarily a bad thing because there are authors out there who have created their own template and they've used it ad nauseum and they've got 40 books out and they're making their living. So I'm not going to knock template writing. It obviously works for some people. But in my regard, I didn't want to necessarily be that kind of writer. So I really do try to keep things a little bit more interesting. Sometimes the only way to keep it interesting is by having unique characters, people that I have written before or that have different kinds of challenges that I hadn't thought of. Um, and sometimes it's crazy events that just make no sense that I have to make sense of. And those are the ways that I keep it fresh for me. Um, you could pretty much do it any way that works for you. As long as you're thinking about what worked for you when you were experiencing some other media. So if you're watching a movie and you're like, Oh my God, I figured it out in 10 minutes. Then you obviously want to pay attention to, well, what did they do wrong that revealed their twist way too soon for you? And then you can do away with that in your own work. A great example of a twist being caught way too soon is Shutter's Island. I was really excited about that movie when I saw the trailer. But in the opening scene, Leonardo DiCaprio is being sick in the bathroom. And as it pans out, you see all these chains hanging from the ceiling. So obviously he's on a prison barge of some kind. And it's in a weird time where they actually change people up on a boat like that. And we all know that the story is taking place in, I believe it's the 1950s. So we're not looking at like slavery times um, in the 1800s. So these are for the mental patients. That's creepy unto itself. But I was like, huh, that's weird. Why is he taking that over? Is that the only fairy that goes out there? I guess so. But then he walks out and there's Mark Ruffalo standing outside. And he pauses when he sees him like, whoa, I haven't seen him before. And then he walks over and they have a conversation. And that conversation ruined the, the twist of the movie because he didn't know him. And they're introduced for the first time. And Mark Ruffalo is introduced as his new partner. Well, how did they not know each other before they even got on the boat? I mean, they had to be waiting for the ferry. And when it pans out and shows around, they're way out to sea. Like they've been there for a while. It's not like it's been five minutes. So right there, you know, the twist, you know, that Leonardo DiCaprio's character is likely one of the patients just based on how he was even talking to himself when he looked in the mirror and that gave it away too soon. There's a lot of things they could have done. They could have had them meeting at the shore, but that wouldn't have worked necessarily because the impression is they didn't take him all the way back to the shore for fear that he might escape. They could only take him out to the middle where he sort of snaps into his new role a la Memento and comes into realization that he is once again a U.S. Marshal and he's going to investigate his conspiracy. So it's moments like that that can teach you so much about storytelling for your own work. It's any story you watch, any movie you watch, uh, with some exceptions. I mean, there are formulaic things that you really aren't going to get much out of the 45 minute murder mysteries aren't going to help you too much in your own murder mystery writing. You need to do things 
that challenge a little bit more. Uh, a great example would be the 10 episodes of Bosch's season one, where they really do devote time to investigate the murder, two murders in this case. And you really get a better sense of what takes so long. You know, these people aren't just busting out a case in a few hours or even a couple days. A lot happens and they're very busy with it. It's creepy and, and you get the sense that these people are actually doing a job. They're not just stumbling between coincidental moments and lucky pieces of evidence that lead them to a conclusion. And if you really want to study those kinds of things and see how you can use that dramatically without falling back on, oh, look, my characters are superheroes that just know stuff out of the blue, then you can really get a lot out of your viewing. And maybe in some ways... It's a little less fun to watch or listen to audio dramas or read books because I am constantly looking for ways to improve my own craft through doing them. And so sometimes I'm a little overly critical. It does end up where I'm not having as much fun uh, watching movies or whatever. A great example is Dune, the latest Dune. I had a lot of problems with that movie, not just because I'm not a huge fan of some of the actors in it, but just how they presented the story. Now, the original Dune book, I've read more times than any other book. I don't really read too many books more than once, but that book I've read in excess of 10 times throughout my life, since I was a teenager all the way into my adulthood. So I know it pretty well. I've got the Dune Encyclopedia. I've got the role-playing games. I've got as much information about Dune as you could probably get without having Frank Herbert's notes. So I really understand the concepts going on there. And for me, the Dune movie didn't fail because I knew all of those things. I understood what a Mentat was. I understood what suit conditioning meant. I knew all of those things. They didn't tell you <laughs> in the movie. Uh, there's a moment when Theofor Howitt does his Mentat thing where he's going to become a human computer and, and, and come up with you know some computations. And the way they show it is that he basically has a second eyelid that goes over his eyes, turns them sort of scalera while he thinks of something, and then he reports back. But we don't really get the sense that he's a human computer. We don't really understand why that would be important. We don't know about the Butlerian Jihad. We don't know why there's no computers. You know, there's all kinds of little things that shape the world of Dune. And all we got in the movie was awesome vistas and, and people doing the bare minimum to tell the first half of the book. There's so many things about that story that need to be there. Now, all that said, maybe, maybe it was a good idea for them to not try to explain all that stuff and just go on faith because critically the movie did well. It did well financially and people generally seem to like it. So maybe that was the failure of the David Lynch version. Maybe that was the failure of the miniseries, that they spent too much time educating you on the world and not enough time just telling you the story. Maybe it didn't matter that the Mentats were there and that they were the, you know, living computers and all that stuff. Maybe the Butlerian Jihad doesn't matter. Um, maybe they did the right thing is what I'm saying. And I'm just critical because here I am, a huge lifelong Dune fan, and I sort of expected those things. Uh, I think, based on the reception, that maybe people just don't want all that background in their movies. And I'm part of some Facebook groups 
that really harp on uh, adaptations, movies, uh, books to movies all the time. They're pretty unhappy about many of them, as a matter of fact. And half the time I think that's because they're not seeing the details displayed the way that they would want, or they're not seeing the details they want at all. Or something has changed between book and movie that was integral to them enjoying the work. That happens a lot. Uh, Earthsea, uh, the Earthsea TV show that Sci-Fi did, probably a good example of making some sweeping changes that sort of forgot the whole point of the book. We see it all the time. Uh, the book Blood and Chocolate takes place in the United States. The werewolves are relatively reasonable for the most part. And uh, the main sort of werewolf who takes over the pack actually turns out to be a decent guy. He's just kind of harsh, mainly because he's the guy, he's the pack leader. So I guess he has to be. But then they make a movie out of it. And even the writer says, well, I'm, I'm glad they paid me to use the name of my book. Because in that, the main werewolf guy starts off seeming like he's a decent person. But then it turns out he's into all kinds of criminal activity. And it, it just goes nuts from there. It's nothing like the book at a certain point. So I kind of get where people are coming from when that sort of thing happens. At that point, you really have to wonder, why did you even bother to buy the name? You could have made some other random werewolf movie that would have been watched just as much as this. All you really did was offend the people who uh, who love the book. The, 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 the free audience you hoped to bring into the theater is now offended because when they watched it, they're like, whoa, 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 this was like in Connecticut or wherever, and now it's in Romania? I mean, come on, Hammer, what are you doing? It wasn't a Hammer film, by the way. I'm just teasing. But... That happens so much where you're just like, whoa, what happened here? I haven't watched it, but I've heard reports that the Foundation TV show pretty much does the same thing, sort of ignores the book quite a bit, which again, it's like just make another sci-fi thing. Like Raised by Wolves seems to be doing just fine. I'm not aware of that being based on a book or a series. Correct me if I'm wrong. Feel free to comment and let me know. Um, I mean, it happens all the time. Just do something new. Uh, you don't necessarily need that name. In fact, investors should be savvy enough to know that if you're pitching doing a book, if you're going to dramatically change it, they're probably going to lose their investment. So maybe they should ask, well, how close are you going to make this to the product you've bought that we're basically helping you pay for? Because we need to know so that when it comes out, we know if this is a tax write-off or if we're going to make some money. I don't know. It's, it's actually quite amusing how often that happens. And that's why this whole group just goes crazy and complains. And honestly, they're not wrong. I mean, there's no reason to do what they do. And so when we are coming at our work, so that was a big tangent about remakes and, and the impact they have. But uh, it's an interesting study because some authors are totally cool with it and don't really care what happens to their book when it moves to the movies. And some are super passionate and angry and vocal about it. And they come out and they really have a lot to say. A great example of somebody who really hates it is Alan Moore, who went crazy about Watchmen and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, etc. And then there's someone like Elmore Leonard, who is just like, whatever. For example, when uh, Tarantino decided to make Jackie Brown, he asked him, 
you know, is there anything that I need to be aware of? I'm, I want to make some changes. And now more Leonard's like, dude, I write books. You make movies, do what you need to do. I don't care. And I find that an interesting sort of dynamic. And there's everything in between. There's people who are like, well, I don't really care. But when I see how bad it can be, I'm, I'm a little offended. But whatever. The, 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 the key here and the whole point of that is that the mediums are very different. Even if you make your movie in a novel format, like in Pulp Fiction, where it jumps around and it tells the story non-linearly, it's still a movie. It still has some advantages over books and some disadvantages. You simply do not have the time to give the backstories for characters in a movie that you do in a book. Unless you're making a series, you know, like, for instance, if you've decided to make a 40-episode series, you might be able to get to the same level as a novel if you're telling the single story throughout. But I suspect that it would get a little boring for people trying to watch that when in reading, you could get through quite a bit of backstory in a couple of pages. It takes a little bit longer to make that interesting in a movie, and it has to be part of the overall narrative that is constantly driving the story forward. I mean, that's sort of what we've come to expect in our moving media, so to speak, when we watch a film or a play, we want it to move. We want it to tell its story quickly. That's the whole concept of show, don't tell. It embodies it. That's the point. And you'll see in critical reviews when there's too much talking, too much exposition to tell the story, then the reviewers go off about how it's doing tell instead of show. Whereas in a book... You can get away with that a little bit more. I know that some critics will give you a hard time for, you know, tell, don't show <laughs> in your novel. But if you weave it in properly, you can get away with a lot more. And so when we look at an adaptation from book to movie, the chances are you're only going to get the bare bones, the hopefully soul of the story translated to the screen. Because all of the fiddly bits, the details that some people really cling to and get upset about when they miss, are just not going to be there. They don't have time. An example is that Nearly Headless Nick is in a lot more of the books of Harry Potter, but he eventually is just not in the movies anymore. It's just not practical because there's just too many other things going on to bring that back. You sort of just have to know he's there. And that's really what that Dune movie did was if you've seen the previous movies or you've read the books, then you know what's going on yourself and you enjoy it. But they've boiled it down to the bare bones for people who have not read the books and don't care about those details. And they're still going to get something out of it. I know that I am not the best person to determine if they succeeded or failed because I am too mired in the story and have too much background and know too much about it to, to come at it from a, a neutral position. But I have asked around and people who aren't as familiar didn't have any problem with it. So there is that anyway. So whilst I've been, I hoped to talk about the uh, self-promotion stuff and get it out of the way at the beginning. Uh, apparently I've weaved it in because the last thing I really want to talk about is that I have been working on the second season of the Malevolence comic. The final episode, 13 of season one, is currently going up at Tapastic, and it'll be done sometime next month. And then we will start season two. Four episodes are done right now, 
and they are all available on Patreon right away. And they um, have had to be censored <laughs> on Tapastic to keep it on the mobile app because apparently the Apple Store and the Google Store are a bit puritanical, so certain things are no longer allowed to be seen there. Even though Tapastic doesn't mind if you show those things, as long as you mark them mature, uh, they won't have that on the app. So I've had to censor some pages. They are uncensored on Patreon if that's something you care about. So um, you'll see the link for that below, but I'm pretty excited about it. They've been really interesting pages. It's a very different story with new characters and some old characters and a continuation of season one. I think it's a really good example of moving from one place to the next. Um, if you are wanting to study storytelling and really understand how I go about building stories from my experience of doing all these novels for other people, you can absolutely see it in the progression of uh, episode one to episode 13 to season two. So very much worth it if you're interested in that kind of thing. Uh, next time I do the podcast, I really want to talk about plot. I want to boil it down. I want to discuss it at length and really detail out what plot is, why it matters, and how so many people use that term incorrectly when talking about movies in particular. Because you'll always hear, there was no plot. And it's like, well, actually, there kind of was. But anyway, that's it for this week. I want to thank you very much for listening to the show. If you liked what you heard and you want to hear more, please visit the coffee site. Think about donating. It is www.ko-fi.com slash Society Case Files. If you want to check out more information, you can see www.societycasefiles.com. And if you're interested in checking out the trailer for Malevolence or the audio drama or any of that good stuff, just check the link below and you'll see the YouTube channel and a whole bunch of other stuff. Thanks again. Look forward to talking to you next time. Bye now.